Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website, aiming to help you get better results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me, as always, is my co-host, John Tidy, from reaperblog.net. How are you doing, John? I'm great. I feel like we can actually copy and paste that intro now. It's like... <laughs> The first few times there was a little bit of variation, but now it's all the same. Anyway, so this week it's time for another Q&A episode where we try and answer some of the questions that you guys have left for us on the blog, on social media, sent to us via email that we never have time to reply to, but we do read. And we're going to answer some of the most interesting questions here for you, hopefully, in case you guys find them useful or interesting too. So, uh, John, why don't you hit me with the first question? All right, first question comes from Darnell. Do you have any opinion on the Stone Roses 2009 remasters? Have you checked the dynamic range or anything? And do you think they sound better than the original releases? They used the wrong take and mix of She Bangs the Drum with loud backing vocals and no reverb on the hi-hat intro. Apart from that, it sounds pretty good. They said the reason for doing this was because it was only ever mastered for vinyl, so the original CD release lacked low end. Sounds a bit loud, though, so it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on it. Cheers. Uh, the answer is I hadn't heard the remasters, but I did manage to grab a bit of time um, earlier on to take a quick listen to two or three of the songs, and I thought it was pretty interesting. I mean, I think the first thing to say is uh, I didn't think it was a bad remastering job, so that the last episode was about remastering, and we were talking there about the kind of backlash from people who are unhappy with the sound of remasters of some classic albums. I didn't think it was exceptional for me, but I didn't think it was bad. I mean, the level was probably a dB or two higher than I would do it if it had been given to me. But having said that, I didn't hear any kind of major problems because of it. I mean, I, I should say I didn't do, you know, I didn't do a careful loudness matched comparison between the original master and the new master, which is what I would want to do if I was going to give you a really detailed kind of critique but just kind of listening to it I thought it sounded pretty good it still sounded authentic it sounded like the original releases and it did have a fuller low end I was interested that there wasn't more sub in the sound because that to me is a little bit of what was lacking it kind of I would say some of the songs sounded a little bit thick to me but I mean this again raises this interesting question in remastering of how much you change it in comparison to the original release, because when you go back and listen to some of the original versions, they also had this slightly thick quality. It's just that the, I think the frequency response on these was fuller and warmer, which I appreciated. I I always thought that first Stone Iris's album sounded a little bit kind of, a little bit wispy, a little bit thin um, and ethereal maybe for what is basically a rock band. I know they're kind of a rock band with delusions of grandeur maybe but um the other thing that interested me was i listened to a bit of the song waterfall which is the third track on the cd and that has always had a very prominent couple of notes in the bass line that i think probably had to do with the sound of the original instrument as opposed to necessarily an eqing decision um, and th that was still there and it was quite noticeable you know it really kind of leaps out at you and there again is another interesting issue. I think if I had been remastering it, I would have been tempted to address that a little bit. It's almost like there's too much of a couple of notes and the frequencies around them. It, there's like a build-up there. But I, I didn't try that myself this evening, and it's quite possible that if I had been doing that remastering job, 
if I had tried that, it would have taken away from the essential character of the song in the first place and made it sound wrong, you know, in the same way that we discussed that people complain that some of the the Elvis remasters sounded wrong in the last episode. So, yeah, I thought it was a little bit too loud. I suspect if I had compared it with the original release, I would have wanted a little bit more of the kind of the transient detail of the original. So probably for me, a compromise between the two. But, you know, there's always this issue of who is in the driving seat behind the remastering process. Who is it calling shots? Who's saying, we want it to sound like this and signing off on it? So it may be that the engineer was was guided by either the record company or maybe uh, the artists were involved. You know, you can never tell. I think one thing that was that I liked about it was it retained a lot of the variations between the different songs in the album. There's some quite different sounds to different songs, quite different EQ shapes. Some of them are more dense. Some of them have a more open texture to them. And that all seemed to be retained, which I think is probably exactly as it should be. Perhaps for me, they could have evened them out a little bit more. It's, you know, this is one of those difficult calls and where the whole issue of taste comes into things. So, yeah, I would, uh, you know, I'd give it a, a solid B <laughs> if I was grading it personally. And I'll, this is where I'll look it up on Discogs and find out that somebody, some huge name remastered it. Um, but, you know. There you go. It's we're allowed to have opinions, right? Yeah. Next question comes from Lighter Thief. It seems to me that each generation likes the sound of distortion that the previous generation found unacceptable. From Sam Phillips to Fuzzboxes to Hendrix to Bit Crushers to Clippers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and onwards. If it sounds good to the artist and listener, then it is good. Great podcast, though. Thanks. Oh, thanks. Glad you like it. Actually, in mixing, I would agree with you. I'm a big fan of electronica and. I hesitate to say EDM, but, you know, electronic dance music in the, the widest possible sense. And some of that stuff is absolutely full of distortion and bit crushing and aliasing artifacts and all kinds of, you know, digital processing that is, you know, is the modern equivalent of the Beatles plugging a guitar straight into a mixing desk and distorting it and offending all of the lab-coated Abbey Road engineers. But that, for me, is that's a creative decision and process that's part of the recording and mixing the, the production phase when you get to mastering that's where i don't think this stuff has a place unless it's something that's specifically requested by the client a lot of the dubstep like bass sounds are like aliasing distortion like it's it's an artifact that most people would filter out it's a fault but it became a defining part of the um of the genre. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, actually I was listening to an interview with Brian Eno recently where he was talking about, he had a song that he was in progress with and he couldn't get access to the original files. So he pulled a DAT tape out. He was really pleased with the mix as it was going. and was going to carry on working with it, but it had a huge glitch, a DAT glitch in the middle of it, you know, a big bunch of errors. So this huge burst of distortion in the middle of it. And he thought, well, how am I going to work around that? And he ended up changing the, the track because of this and actually building a whole new section effectively and kind of taking the track in a completely different direction because of it um and you get the same you know overdriving tape distortion uh delay effects you know the kind of the feeding back tape delay all of those kind of things i mean guitar pedals people i mean sylvia massey has written an entire book on how to do this stuff including what it sounds like if you filter things through a pickle 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and if anybody hasn't heard the episode where I interview her about that, I highly recommend you go back and look for it. And we'll uh, we'll put the link on the masteringshow.com so you can check it out. I saw she did a video recently on Facebook about that. Except it wasn't a pickle, was it? It was... Uh, did she, she did have pickles. She did have pickles. She did have pickles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's done pickles, bananas, potatoes. Um, she's insane, basically, in a, in yeah. a good way. Um, and... Yeah, all of that stuff is absolutely fair game if you're writing, composing, and if you're mixing. But I don't think so when you're mastering um, uh-huh. because at that point, you know, you know, you come back to this, the, the basic thing of, of do no harm. Um, and I, I actually challenge the, the idea that people really like those effects Okay, maybe I don't challenge. I guess what I'm saying is I think you could get similar effects that are maybe even better in different ways. Turning it around the other way, you know, there's the whole Brian Eno thing of once you release something, people think that a fault is part of the intention, of the artistic intention. But I still, I keep coming back to the fact I don't feel it's the mastering engineer's job. It's our job to avoid adding faults into the signal, you know, Um rather than deliberately doing it. So if, if the client insists, that's one thing. But if we're just mastering something, then I think, you know, at the very least, you do no harm. Yeah. And, you know, clipping and, and all those kind of things are effectively harming the signal. Um, clipping shouldn't be your default signal chain. Yeah, I guess I should. we should clarify that. I mean, did we do a whole show on clipping? We, I think did, we did. We did. We talked about using it mixing and mastering intentionally or otherwise right so people can go back and listen to that episode to to hear it in detail but i'm talking here i guess mainly about hard digital clipping or really aggressive analog clipping a little bit of soft clipping as we talked about in that episode can sometimes be just what you need to get the punch and actually do we have another question that relates to there's isn't there a question about um clipping and limiting yes what was that question the order of them Right. From Phil, was it? Yeah. 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 So Phil was asking whether he's saying typically it seems to be that the clipper goes before the limiter. If you're using a clipper, a soft clipper in the mastering process um, to avoid the limiter pumping, is there any case for using them in the opposite order? And I had to think about that for a minute. Um, and I think the answer is yes. One of the answers is if you were going out to analog processing, So if you have a very spiky signal, lots and lots of transient information, depending on the piece of analog gear that you're putting it through, it may handle that spiky signal in a way that you like or in a way that you don't like. So because, you know, in every analog system, you've got the whole signal to noise ratio to to cope with. So let's imagine... I mean, the, the really high spec analog stuff has amazing signal to noise ratios. But, you know, let's say there's a there's a, a valve EQ or something that you really like the sound of. You know that you need to run it fairly hot to avoid unacceptable levels of noise. But when you run this really spiky signal through it, let's say it might be drums, it distorts really unpleasantly. That would be a case for adding a really clean limiter at the output stage on the output bus before the D2A so that you don't overdrive that piece of equipment, but you can still use it effectively in terms of the signal-to-noise ratio and get that really nice quality from it that you're looking for. 
you could possibly also use a clipper in that situation, but the chances are if, if it's that spiky, then the clipper might also distort in a way that is not pleasing. So mm -hmm. I guess that's a long way around of saying if it sounds right. My idea for reversing the order would be if your limiter isn't uh, a true peak limiter, or if you want to have a slower attack on the limiter, and you could use the clipper to just get the those peaks off after. So you'd use oversampling on the clipper if oversampling is not an option inside your limiter. Uh, okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, that, that could work. It, yes, if you have multiple processes for doing the limiting and the clipping and you want to use one or another because of a particular way that it sounds or the feature that you can use or whatever, but it doesn't have intersample peak control, whereas you have, say, a clipper that does, then yeah, absolutely, you might want to use it. I mean, I think most times for me, I would think that a clipper logically comes before a limiter. Because as you say, it's a kind of, it's a softer way of controlling those peaks without getting the pumping. It's fairly rare that I want a limiter pumping sound, certainly not an, a kind of an overt pumping sound from a limiter. But I guess you could... No, I still can't think. Are you tired, I, Ian? <laughs> no, it's just I, I genuinely can't think of a, um, an example where you... I'm, I'm trying to think outside the box because it's like, you know, you do something a certain way. And specifically in mastering. Yeah, I mean... Because there are times when you use a clipper without a limiter or without any compression in in mixing if you want that certain sound. But again, you'd probably have the limiter on the... You know, later on in the chain or in the on the master track, so it'd still be before uh, the limiter. The only thing I can think of is that you like the tone of the limiter with a slightly slower attack, and you're using the uh, the clipper just to get just to make sure that the last couple dB are in the right range, not going above zero. Yes, I I, I agree with that, and I think maybe another situation might be where you do want going completely against what I just said, where you do want the pumping sound of the limiter. And here I'm not thinking about a digital brick wall limiter because as we talked about back in the episode on limiting, typically that doesn't sound great. But if you have an analog compressor limiter, one of these you know classic pieces of kit where people want the sound of the limiter pumping to, to add flavor to the, the signal, and then you want to lift the level of that up without adding any further pumping, then you might want to use a clipper. Because for me, the value of a clipper is to be able to lift the level up and you don't hear the pumping, you just hear a little bit of distortion instead. And providing you're comfortable with that distortion, that's that's the benefit. So if you're going to use that after a limiter, it must be because you like the pumping sound of the limiter. There's kind of no point in using a limiter that lifts the level cleanly and then putting it into a clipper. I guess maybe if you're just going for super loudness, but it just makes far more sense to have it the other way around. But if you like the character of the limiter, the quality of the the limiter pumping, um, which you might well do. You know, I mean, there's there's people who do that with bass. There's people who do that with vocals. There's people who do it with drums. There's all manner of times in in mixing, especially when you might choose to do that. And then you wanted to lift that up and retain the kind of whatever aggressive quality there is in that sound or, the, or the, the impactful quality of that sound, then it would make sense possibly to use a clipper instead to avoid adding further pumping on top of it. Uh -huh. 
There are times processing a kick drum or a snare where you have just a slightly slower attack, lots and lots of compression or limiting, and it kind of makes a pop on the transient. And then you just use the clipper to just make sure that doesn't go above zero. Mm -hmm. so, so there's other reasons. It's more for mixing, more for tone shaping than you would use in mastering. And mastering, uh, like we said in that show, it's more for just getting rid of maybe 2 dB of the sharpest, fastest peaks so it doesn't uh, pump your limiter. You can get 2 dB more gain reduction overall without getting into distorting the limiter because it's a different type of distortion and it's usually not as nice. Yeah, and I think actually that's a nice summary. We can round all of that up quite neatly by saying typically in mastering, we're going for transparency. You know, that's kind of one of the first things I ever said. Um, usually I don't want people to notice how things are being done. They just I just want it to sound better without them realizing how. So clipping followed by limiting is a great recipe for transparency. If you reverse that order, or if you're adding a ton of uh, distortion, as Lighter Thief's question was asking, in both those cases, those are kind of quality and character decisions that I think probably belong more to the mixing stage than the mastering stage. Mm -hmm. um, so that because they're less transparent. Cool. Next question comes from Fad. What is your opinion on speaker calibration using Masterbus plugins like Sonarworks? I'm aware it doesn't solve all room acoustics problems. I do feel it gives me a serious solution as I have a less than acceptable room to mix. Do you raise any warnings on using software speaker calibration? Do you have any do you happen to have made comparisons with, without, and reference them to reference? <laughs> Do you have any references you can reference? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're talking about Sonarworks, um, IK Media's Arc, uh, and there's a headphone calibration things that we could probably talk about in there as well. Do you use any of that yeah. stuff? I don't have experience of any of the speaker calibration stuff, uh, but I have used Sonarworks for headphones. Yeah, um, and it, is, is Sonarworks a room calibration or is it headphones? It's both. Okay, they're either they have they, they have or I different, think they, no they have, they have two products. They have different okay. products. One one for headphones, one for one for room. Okay, um, and it works. You know, mm. uh, my headphones are Sennheiser HD six fifties. They're really good, but they're not completely flat. Sonar works correct for that. Now, the interesting thing is that I tend not to feel as comfortable using them with that on, but that might just be because I've used them for whatever it is five or six years now and, and other types of Sennheiser before that. So I'm kind of so used to the way things sound that it, it kind of feels weird to me. I mean, you kind of buy headphones for a certain sound anyways, don't you? Well, I bought these because they had as little sound as possible. But uh, <laughs> I think I think yeah, you certainly have to accept that if you buy headphones, they're going to have a sound. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you buy any pair of speakers, they're going to have a sound. You know, it's, yeah. the, it's the most important stage in... The signal chain, basically, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, okay, maybe you could argue that the mic is, but in terms of the reproduction side, you know, uh, the speaker is going a truly terrible speaker will sound truly terrible in the best possible room in the world. Um, and the flip side applies. I do have some experience with Arc. Okay, how'd you get on? It's a huge pain in the ass to make uh, work. <laughs> um, 
the calibration thing is about a 15-minute process, and it may or may not sound balanced. Um, so you'll spend easily 45 minutes getting a few different measurements that might work. And you listen to your reference tracks, and they might sound worse. It might sound a lot worse, or it might be clipping, or it, your left and right speaker balances may be way off. But what it did help me with the first time I used it, so I realized that the EQ that applies to the speakers after the, you know, when the software is running, it, it's applying an inverse curve to correct your speakers to make it flat or correct your room yeah. as much as it can. And I was finding that it was adding like a 12 dB boost to the high frequencies. So I swapped out some of the acoustic panels in my room so that next time I tested it, it came out more flat. So I swapped broadband absorbers on the left and right um, mirror positions of my uh, mixing desk, and I swapped those out with some diffusers, and I get the same sort of amount of control, but I don't lose high frequencies. And the next time I ran ARC, it sounded much better to the point where I just don't use it anymore. <laughs> like it, it was helpful for that just to learn what the problem was, like to see the inverse curve and see where things needed to be corrected. But really, I think something more like um, Room EQ Wizard is better because it, it, it doesn't force you to use it as part of the mix. It just, it just tests your room and you can see what the problems are, how far away from flat it is, the reverb time, and then use that to tweak your room with acoustic treatment products, which sounds great. And everything you record in that room, everything you listen to in that room is going to sound better. That software doesn't help when you're recording at all. Now, that's really interesting. Now, when, when you got the ARC set up so that you were happier with the way that it was working, do you feel... So I, having not done this, I have a... Okay, let's go back to my reservation about this. Well, I don't have a reservation about it. I, I have no problem with people using this software if it helps them, but I think you should do it after doing as much as you possibly can in the room to solve the problems. Absolutely. Um, you know, basically because let's say your room has a big null at 70 hertz. So where you, where you sit, you don't hear enough 70 hertz you can put a massive EQ boost in the monitoring chain to try and compensate for that, but the room still has the null. Yeah. You know, the, the problems are still there. And, also, and critically, a lot of the, you know, those problems are caused by um, the phase of the sound that's moving around the room. Like you might have a null exactly where you sit and then you move a foot to the left or a foot to the right and it turns into a boost. So you've got too much at that frequency. Yeah, and, and I don't know if it inverts the phase of certain frequency bands so that it so that I think it the more sophisticated ones try and compensate for the phase as well. But my problem with it is is you're trying to fix the problem after the fact. Whereas if you put broadband absorbers in the corners of the room and some kind of panels at the first reflection points and you have a cloud and you have something at the back and you have some diffusion, you're actually making the entire space sound genuinely sound better. Um you know, uh, you know. Th th so the problem with first reflection points is, and we have a whole episode on uh, acoustics and acoustic treatment for anybody who wants to listen to more on this topic. So I won't go into too much detail, but if you have first reflection points where the sound is reflecting off the wall and coming back to you and colouring the sound, if you put up absorber panels that take some of the energy out of the waves and reduce 
that effect, uh, it's almost like those walls aren't there anymore or they're less there than they are. You know, you're yeah. you're actually reducing the problem at the source. It's this is this is a get it right at the source issue. You know, just like it's better to put the mic in the right place on your recording instrument rather than moving the mic afterwards and then trying to EQ it to get the sound right. Same thing applies. If you can make the room sound better so that you have, like, exactly as you did, exactly as you described, you used the arc as an educational process, basically, to improve the, the actual sound in the room so that you needed the software less. Um, and that would definitely be why way my recommendation. And I know that, for example, one big name engineer uh, who uses correction hardware, I think, uh, is Bob Katz. He has some kind of amazing high-end hardware correction system that he uses on top of the fact that he's in a very carefully tuned room with lots and lots of acoustic treatment and incredibly insanely expensive and high quality speakers yeah that i think is you know kind of that, that's an absolutely valid way to use it there are some prices to pay because i think he has latency because of the processing time in order to do that but you know he's comfortable with that solution and people listening might well be as well yeah, like EQing your monitors is not an invalid approach, but it's not the first approach that you should take. Right. Yeah. And and so come back to my question I was going to ask you. My theory is, you think about what I was saying about, okay, so there's a null at your mix position and then there's a boost kind of slightly to the left or slightly behind maybe. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you add compensating EQ, you're going to make that whole situation even more unstable. I feel yeah. like you will end up with the point where the absolute sweet spot or the you know where you put the mic to do the measurements and do the correction might be better but it's probably going to be even more weird and worse everywhere else did you get any sense of that when you first did it i mean maybe that's why you didn't like it the first time it was making such a big correction that there was there was that but it also had a lot of times where the left speaker had it just it didn't sound balanced the sound like even a test tone didn't sound balanced anymore. So it's it's such a tricky thing to get it measured right. Um, with that one, it's not just one position and you do different tones. It's like, I think it's like 10 different positions and they have oh, wow. to be measured very carefully so that, um, so if you're doing one measurement that's closer to the right speaker, when you do the opposite side, it has to be precisely the same or then it, it adjusts the curve to compensate for your mistake, but then when you're listening in the middle again, you're, it's, everything's leaning to the left. It doesn't, it doesn't feel right. That sounds kind of like what I'm, I'm feeling like it's just would be so sensitive to so many variables. You know, I mean, what happens yeah. if you... And you can't even scale back the amount, at least with the, the arc stuff. It's not like you could set it to like only correct 20%. It was, it was pretty extreme, I thought. Yeah, that's one of the nice things about the Sonarworks is it has a blend amount. So that yeah. you can, so for example, with the with the six fifties, I'm not completely comfortable with it set on 100, percent but I can if I reduce it to sort of sort of 75, percent it kind of it improves the EQ on the headphones somewhat, but not so much that it kind of sounds weird to me. Um, yeah. And answering this question is slightly frustrating because we had exactly the same come up in a Q and A on the Home Mastering Masterclass a while ago, and I came up with what I thought was a really good analogy to explain it and i can't remember what that analogy was but i think we've covered the essence of it you know I mean, yeah absolutely Tr experiment with these pieces of software and i know that lots of people are working in spaces where they can't for some reason uh put in acoustic treatment um yeah so in that case you know 
it's the next thing to try and hopefully yeah. it will enable you to get but i think the approach that john suggested there is really good you know if you're like it may not be that i mean he had some acoustic panels that he changed from absorbers to diffusers and if you're not able to put in acoustic treatment that may not work but you can do stuff like move the speakers around slightly moving the speakers three inches or a couple of inches can actually make some big changes especially in the low end sometimes huge um, difference Definitely, it's definitely worth doing. Yeah, um, you know, drawing the curtains, or maybe moving the speakers so that they're at the other end of the room coming back, or so that you're sitting. You know, the ideal position in a room is always one third of the length away from an end wall, um, but maybe if you go two thirds of the room back from the speakers, rather than one th something something like that might help. You know, there's a ton of other things you may be able to change and do all of those first. Uh -huh. uh, before I would say dig actually spending all that time calibrating this stuff and then trying to, to rely on the results would be my yeah. advice. One quick thing. There's another piece of software from Tone Boosters called Morphit. It's a headphone thing similar to Sonarworks. Um, it has a whole bunch of different EQ curves that are like calibration readings from different sets of headphones pretty big variety of them built in what it can do is flatten out your headphones the same way that sonarworks would um there is a a blend control so you can have from zero up to 200 percent of that eq mm. curve applied to it which is pretty interesting and i like it somewhere about halfway and or like i mean like 50 percent sounds pretty good and the interesting thing is that with the K240s that I wear, the AKGs, if I have it set up right, take the headphones off and listen to my monitors, and I don't notice a tone shift between the mo my monitors and the headphones. It's really interesting. And at first I was thinking, this doesn't do anything. And then I noticed that. and like, oh, wow, this is actually working pretty well. Um, but the other thing that it can do is make your headphones sound like other headphones. You can blend two curves together. If you want to hear your mix on a bunch of different headphones without going out and buying a bunch of different headphones, then it's an interesting way of doing things. You're absolutely right. And Sonarworks does those things as well. So it has a range of, I mean, the cool thing about Sonarworks is you can actually send the headphones to them and they will give you a perfectly calibrated curve for your particular pair of headphones. But mm. out of the box, it ships with, you know, so that I, I applied the kind of the generic HD650 curve, which is a kind of average over all of the HD650s that they've tested. Uh -huh. which works reasonably well and yeah you can do exactly the same thing you can say okay i have 650s um now i want to see how it would sound if i had a pair of beats for example or you know whatever it might be and yeah i agree that that's that can be useful the other thing that um sonarworks has that be interested to know whether the tone boosters has is you can choose the filter types that are being used so obviously the best filter type would be phase linear uh, EQ to make this correction uh, and if you're not sure what that means you need to go back and listen to the EQ episode way back in the, the dim and distant past. The problem with phase linear EQ is it involves a processing delay so you have latency in the chain so it's, it's no good in certain situations so in that case you would want to use a minimum phase EQ which has pretty much zero latency um, but the, the, the result of the sound won't necessarily be as good. It may add some extra coloration that you might not want. So that's another interesting variable you can switch in the Sonarworks stuff. Uh -huh. 
this has 128 samples of delay, so it must do something. But there's a, a limiter built in, so it could be that. It could just be that. That's one of the nice things about Sonarworks as well, is that it will automatically... Well, it's kind of nice, but it's annoying, which is that it, it reduces the level to avoid any clipping. Um, mm -hmm. So you mentioned with the arc that you got clipping. That doesn't happen with Sonarworks, but it does mean you have a big level shift, which is not such a problem when you switch it on, but if you forget to turn the headphones back down when you switch it off, uh, it can be quite painful. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we should move on, because that was like 20 minutes on that one topic. We should. Next question comes from Bobby Zurich. What instruments or frequencies should be in mono? I find too wide of certain bass frequencies tend to muddy things up and take away energy. I had a similar question from Space Hotel Music. In Studio One, you can do frequency selective application of a plugin using built-in splitter. So you can select, say, below 100 hertz and send that off on a route that includes narrowing plugins before continuing on, but anything above 100 hertz will bypass that and continue on with the other inserts. I mean, it's interesting because what kind of instruments should be in mono? That's a tricky question, right? Because I think all of this is going to be an it depends kind of question. I mean, the classic example would be bass, right? You have a bass guitar, it's mono, except that actually the way that we hear bass in the real world is in a space. So you could mm -hmm. argue that you want to hear a bass cab in a space and therefore you might want to mic up bass cab and that space in stereo potentially that applies even more to an acoustic stand-up bass and i often like a bit of chorus on the low end of a bass yeah and and yeah it depends whether you have some some width to that or whether it's a kind of a, a more of a flanging type effect or, or what it is i think on the whole most things probably work best and you probably save yourself the most pain by miking things in mono uh, having said that i'm a big fan of stereo miking um, so I love to hear, you know, acoustic guitar, say, uh, recorded in stereo. But the truth is, if you're sitting in most situations, unless you're sitting kind of two feet away from the player, which is where we often put the mics, but in, in a, in a real situation, if you're listening to, to players, most instruments are pretty much mono sources, even something big like a piano or a drum kit. So, but I love wide pianos and drums, um, so I, I think really it's a case of of taste, but bass can be a particular issue because as we talked about back in the vinyl episode, if you have lots of uh, out of phase information in the bass, it can actually make some people feel slightly nauseous. Um, it can certainly cause problems with vinyl cutting. It's the kind of thing that gets addressed at a vinyl cut. Um, having said that, it's used quite a lot in EDM, you know, so... Um, yeah. I would think having as a default position, having the bass in mono is probably a reasonable place to start, I would say. Um, bass as the instrument or bass frequencies? Well, definitely bass as the instrument. Not so much bass frequencies. I mean, if I, you know, like, let's say you've got two kind of hard panned guitar parts. Um you know, playing similar parts, maybe in slightly different voicings in the chords, so that you get a kind of nice wide sound to them. In that case, I wouldn't be suggesting that you filter and mono all of the bass in those, personally, unless it was causing some kind of problem, you know. Um, especially not the... I guess maybe when you start getting down to kind of 100 hertz and below, you might consider doing more of that, but not many 
instruments have frequency content that goes that low. Um, and then you get into the whole topic of, of, you know, kind of EQ carving, where you don't want the low-end mess on, say, a huge guitar cab getting muddled up with the upper ends of a bass guitar. If you want a clean, punchy bass sound, then there's a lot to be said for keeping those frequency areas distinct. That's all mixing stuff, though, as well. So just, I mean, as a quick summary, in mastering, I would say I mono the bass if I hear a problem. You know, if I'm hearing wildly out of phase stuff or if it's making me kind of, there's a kind of inside out feeling to it when you have lots of out of phase or hard panned low end, uh, it kind of, mm -hmm. you know, it makes you feel like you want to pop your ears somehow, like you, when a plane is going up, you know, and the altitude is changing. Um, those are the kind of situations where I might uh, change something. Um, and I know vinyl cutting engineers will kind of have a different set of criteria for that. And there's an episode on vinyl for anybody who's interested. Basically, I think I'd say there are kind of no rules, but starting off thinking probably mono is a good way to go is probably sensible. Yeah. I will mono stuff probably below 100 hertz, probably even lower than that, starting lower than that, let's say 70 hertz or something. I do listen on a 2.1 system, so my low end is already mono, um, and I can hear a difference. When well, where's I'm, the crossover for that? It would be below 100, I think. 80 maybe, yeah. Yeah, probably around 80. But I, I do tend to like the mix as a whole sounding um, with the the very low end, some to mono, or maybe narrowed by 50% if it has interesting stuff on the, the sides in the low end. But I don't really have any problems either using MSEQ or unlinked stereo EQ. If, it's, if it feels unbalanced or if it feels too muddy in the low end and things like that, so... Yeah. It's it's tricky. We might. I mean, one thing I would say is that more often than not, the bass is already in mono. You know, yeah, ninety percent of stuff that I master, ninety five percent probably. You know, because you have a kick drum panned in the center, um, you have a bass guitar in the center, and that's probably pretty much it. Unless you've got some low end from I don't know synths or guitars or something. Um, this is a good reason to use the solo modes on your monitor controller or. In, in Reaper, there's a, a mono button. You can change that to sides. And just monitor the sides. Does it sound muddy in the low end? And if it does, then EQ it or narrow it. And if not, then leave it alone. Yeah, the other thing you can get is unbalanced. If there's more low end on one side. Yeah, exactly. I was, I was thinking of a pair of drum overheads, right, where... But that's not, not mastering. <laughs> I know, but it is if they... If, they, if, if somebody... Yeah, that's something that the mixer should have got or the recording engineer should have got right in the first place yeah. right? by spacing the mics so that the kick drum and the snare are as close to the center of the image as possible, assuming that's where they are on the drum kit and that that's the end result that you want. But it's not uncommon for people to, I mean, I have placed overheads according to where the symbols are, you know, to get best separation and, and the best coverage of the kit and to, you know, keep the hi-hat out of them or... or reduce the amount of snare whatever it might be if you do that and there is a significant low end being picked up on those mics and you don't filter it out when you're mixing then you could end up with a kind of lopsided stereo image where you might be hearing say a load a load more low end rumble from the kick drum in one side of the 
overheads than the other. If that kind of effect makes it right the way through to the mix that's presented to you when you're mastering, that's the kind of situation, that's the kind of thing I'm listening out for, for potentially uh, narrowing the low end. And I guess you could say it's the kind of thing you can do most of the time without risking causing a problem, but you could potentially cause a problem if there's also a polarity difference in those mics. I mean, A, that's going to sound even more weird anyway, but if you end up with the polarity of the low end being different in the left and right channel, when you mono those, that may or may not have the effect that you want. You know, The effect you want is to get rid of that out-of-phase nonsense and end up with a tighter, more controlled low end. That might work, and it might not. Um, and the risk that you've got with a 2.1 system is that you're already hearing stuff in that way, right? Because it's effectively yeah. already monoing the low end anyway. So you might miss some details in that. So um, for me personally, using a sub, I would prefer to have two subs, one on each channel. Um, mm. Having said that, like I say, 95% of the time it's not a problem. And you're absolutely right. You can use the... Uh, function and the VUMT, the new version of the VUMT, my favorite VU meter uh -huh. plugin has this. So you can click a button, you can hear just the left channel, just the right channel, swap the left and right channels with one click, which is really cool for just checking whether the stereo balance is actually balanced. Um, Cause you, you notice really quickly if it doesn't sound right when you reverse the left and right. And uh -huh. you can also listen to just the mono signal and just the difference signal, um, which is often called the side signal. And yeah. if you want to know the difference between those two things, you need to go back a couple of episodes and listen to that episode as well. You really are going to have to check out the show notes at themasteringshow.com this week. <laughs> <laughs> and and also there will be a link to my review of VOMT Deluxe. Cool. Why not? Why not? And that's probably a good place to leave it. You've listened to all of this. I hope you've found something in there useful and interesting. Now head over to the Mastering Show dot com to follow up on all the links that we've mentioned and if you have already listened to all of the episodes then you must be a true fan and you should go immediately to itunes and give us a five star rating and a really nice review because then other people will discover how great this podcast is which will be great and uh, we'd really appreciate that while you're at themasteringshow.com you might want to sign up for the email list to make sure you don't miss any future episodes um, please also check out John's site at reaperblog.net. Look us both up on social media. I want to say thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music for the show. And thank you, John, for reading all of those questions so expertly and for your input and for editing and mixing the show. My pleasure. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>